It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Corks 96 FM. 1850-715-996, the number to call, text or WhatsApp, 083-396-9696, the email, opinion at 96fm.ie. Before we're even out of the blocks, I'm speaking this morning in particular to people affected by the contents of the Mother and Baby Home Report. If you were listening to us this morning, if you have a story that you want to tell, if you have something that you want to voice, we will give you a platform. I know that in the minds of hundreds of people listening, and it is hundreds if not thousands of people listening, this report will dominate your thoughts for the days, the weeks, the months to come. Perhaps you are mentioned in it. Perhaps your story is in it. Perhaps your mother's story, your daughter's story, your sister's story, your cousin's story is in it. And perhaps you'd like to share how you're feeling this morning. Then I particularly want to hear from you. We don't plan to do the whole morning, but it will certainly dominate our our three hours today. The report of the uh, Mother and Baby Homes Commission finally landed yesterday. The front pages of all the newspapers full of it today. Easily and without question, uh, the award for the most striking front page uh, in many months, in fact, is to the examiner. Uh, It's just a, a slam dunk win. A very, very striking front page at the examiner. 900 or so names. Names of babies. Names of young babies who who passed away at Besborough. And in the middle, it just has that one sentence. May they rest in peace. Phenomenal front page. The Independent talks of a nation's shame. The Irish Times, from the graves of the innocents. The Echo says the Taoiseach will deliver a public apology. What do you think of that, by the way? The report came out yesterday. It's it's 2,865 pages long. The section alone on Besbra is 128 pages. So do you think that people have had time to digest what's in it uh, before the Taoiseach uh, gives his apology? The Sun describes it simply as a harrowing report. It refers to 56 thousand women and 57,000 babies Uh, 2,865 pages as I said it describes in the executive summary an appalling level of infant mortality a total between 1928 when they started to open these places and 1998 when the last one of them closed 9,000 deaths 
9,000 deaths. Across the time that the mother and baby homes were in existence, 15% of all the children in the mother and baby homes died. We know that here in Cork in Besborough, we had the bones of 900. Uh, I shouldn't use the word bones. We had the, because we don't know where the bones are. Uh, and I'll come back to that. But 900 children are unaccounted for uh, in Besborough. 11% of the young women who gave birth in these places were under the age of 18. The youngest on record was 12. Besborough was one of the uh, most significant places in terms of young women going in there. Now, surely, surely any young woman uh, having a child under the age of 18, then and even now, was a victim of rape. That's another question posed. In the matter of redress uh, and what might be done for these people, it says it's a matter for the government, which is kind of throwing the ball to them. The government has said since that they will look at redress and they will introduce some kind of redress. We don't know what yet. Uh, the, the report makes recommendations, but it'll be up to the government to introduce it. Uh, the religious orders, by the way, we've since learned, haha, what changes, plus that change. Research, they, they cannot be compelled to contribute. The religious orders who ran these places cannot be compelled to redress. These are all in the findings of, of the report, or at least the history shows us anyway with regard to the religious orders. One of the findings in the report that I think will upset a lot of people and is upsetting a lot of people is it says that there's very little evidence, very little evidence of forced adoption. Now, I've been listening to people's stories since about 2001. That makes no sense to me. None. None. And I will, I will come back to that particular point. But let us move to the vaccine trials, which are referred to in the report. It says there were seven different sets of vaccine trials in the mother and baby homes. They did not comply with the relevant regulatory and ethical standards of the time. I'm quoting directly. They did not comply with the relevant regulatory and ethical standards of the time. There was no consent from the mothers. No licenses were in place for these trials. Now, that's an outrage in my mind. That, that, I, that's up there with the forced adoptions. That's up there with the deaths. This was young, innocent babies from young, innocent women taken and used in a vaccine trial without anybody's consent and without proper licensing in place. Now, one of the children who was injected with a trial vaccine was a child called Mary Therese Fitzpatrick. Uh, she got a four-in-one shot without the consent of her mom, Josephine. It happened back in, I think, 1961. These days, Mary Therese Fitzpatrick is better known as Mary Steed. And Mary Steed, and she has been an advocate for justice for all of this for the last 30 years. I spoke with her last evening. Mary, when we spoke in November, I think it was, you told me of your expectations, your hopes, uh, what you wanted to see in the report. Does it come anywhere near what you expected or what you hoped? 
Well, I, I think it has come to be what's expected, but not in a good way. I think we're just right again back to where we started with Ryan, uh, a shambles of a report. And um, I, I, it, it, it's sad to say that I am not surprised. But I don't think it delivers. As you were sifting through it, looking at the relevant sections as they applied to you in your, your own story, what, what kind of things were going through your head? What did you see? What did you not see that you wanted to see? Well, I, we'll start first with the overall tone, which seems to be shifting blame out away from the state. And, you know, in, maybe for the first time in my life, I'm going to slightly defend the religious orders here, although they don't get a pass. But, you know, seeming to shift that blame onto the orders and society and the general culture at the time, um, absolving themselves. So that's, that, that's the tone. They're, they're setting the narrative. Um, that somehow the state, you know, really just, we were just minders, you know. Uh, that's, that's pretty disgraceful. The second thing, or two things, the, the constant reference to these were not forced adoptions, um, mm. that, that being primary among them. You know, again, we're talking about women who had no other choice. So what, what, what do you call that mm. besides forced, if yeah. there is no other alternative? Um, and then again, we go back to the same tone of Ryan, the McAleese report, uh, no evidence of abuse. If you have a death rate of 86% in one year in Bezborough, how is that not abuse? You know, I mean, these are just simple things that, that you know, maybe they, maybe they weren't trying to be disingenuous with their language, but... It's, it's plain to see that this was just a, a, a mess of an investigation. I, I, I don't know if they weren't asking the right questions or delving into the right materials, but it's very, very lacking. You, you gave personal testimony, of course, on behalf of yourself and your late mom, Josie. Do you see what you said reflected, and more importantly, reflected properly? Well, I, I do see some of it reflected, but again, it's that, that dichotomy. For example, the vaccine trials, which, as you know, I was part of the 6061 trials. On the one hand, they're admitting this was an egregious breach of Nuremberg Code and, you know, best practice, ethical practice. It was wrong. There was no consent. And then they go on to say, but there's, we could not find evidence that there were any ill effects for any of the participants. How can you say that? No one ever followed up with my adoptive parents or me after I was sent to the States to see if I'd had any ill effects. And I'll be quite frank, during this current, you know, <laughs> climate, I am very nervous about getting a COVID vaccination. Um, much and all as I want it, I'm going to have to do a lot of du due diligence just to be sure that there isn't going to be some bad reaction because of my prior yeah. vaccine history. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of questions there that never got answered for me back when it happened and nobody bothered to follow up. So how can you say yeah. we found no evidence? It, it was you, you and you and I and, and Josie, God be good to her, who who broke the story. The three of us talking to each other many, many years ago. Do you feel she would be satisfied with that finding? Not in any way, shape or form. No, no. no. 
And there doesn't seem to be, and again, we're, we're still trying to sift through it, obviously. There doesn't seem to be any sense of, yes, it was wrong and someone needs to be made to atone for it. Right. That's the other issue is the accountability or lack thereof. Um, I mean, again, I, you know, I have a, an open guardie complaint through Cork that was referred to the Commission of Inquiry. And there is nothing in there so far that I've come across to indicate what the follow up will be on that. You know, that's an ongoing open criminal complaint. How do they plan to address this? And I'm sure it can't be the only one. Hmm. There must be others. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, what do you plan to do with the people who did this wrong? What, what, what are the repercussions? Where's the accountability? Of the, of the nearly 900 babies uh, in Besbra, uh, for which there is no account, there is no, no trace of, of where they ended up. It, again, it doesn't seem to pose the question to the state, well, what are you going to do about it? Is that my reading or are you getting that too? Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I, you know, again, there was obviously there's going to be this legislation uh, put forward by Minister O'Gorman today with regard to the, the burial and excavation uh, situation. But that seems to be solely focused on tomb. Do we plan to do the same with Besborough, with Sean Ross, with other sites? I see nothing in this, for example, that can stop bulldozers moving into Besborough for housing development. Correct. Right. Right. You know, and it and it appears that land, from what I've been hearing, is already being surveyed. There've been people out, yeah. you know, pl- placing markers, what have you. Um, I are they moving ahead with that now? Michael Martin promised that that he did not want to see that happen. He doesn't want it developed. Uh, but what is the next step? Do you plan to do any kind of investigation, excavation, go to the other neighboring cemeteries to ensure whether or not there may be mass graves there? St. Michael's, for example, Cars Hill, you know, um, it, it, it's just atrocious. I, I don't think it's survivor focused at all. I don't think that there's any duty of care or, you know, any good faith I might have had prior to today working with the commission and with the minister's office. I, I, it's evaporated based on what I've read so far. In terms of the the last five years waiting for this, a huge sense, I think, of disappointment. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, I, I think about, and you know them as well as I do, so many of the folks that we lost, especially among the Besborough crowd, um, just in the last few years, how disappointing it would have been for them but they, that, that they didn't even get to see this happen because it did get dragged out for so long. I mean, this should have been done long before even tomb. You and I both know that. You know, this has been a 25-year journey uh, where we've been consistently blaring the horn and nobody's been listening. The Taoiseach is due to make an apology on behalf of the state. Some people are saying that he's doing it too quickly and that he needs to allow the report to sink in. But but even if he did that, uh, is there anything to be served by an apology on the basis of this? No, no. I mean, I, I, I will grant you that there are probably some people out there who want that apology. I, I get that, that that's part of their restorative justice path. Um, as far as I'm concerned, an apology asked for is not a, a true apology. And again, this should have been done long, long ago, long ago. 
plus the whatever words he comes up with in that apology are not going to match the uh, obfuscations and the, the the twisting of words and the way things were produced in that report. It's it's just it, it's not going to make up for it. So he can do that all he wants, but I think it's going to be meaningless for a lot of people. I'm listening to your voice. We've been friends for a long time. I don't think I've ever heard you quite so deflated. Yeah, yeah, there's probably a good bit of deflation there. It's been a long, hard battle, and, you know, this is the outcome. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, Mary, I suppose we'll be thinking of Josie today Thanks. and indeed i think of you, yourself my, my dear friend i wish there was more in this for you but I, as i said yesterday on twitter i said that while i was horrified at what i was reading i wasn't remotely surprised yeah yeah no no surprises same old same old mary thanks very much thanks pj that's Mary Steed speaking to me from the US uh, last evening. You can hear the deflation in, your, in, your, in her voice. And, and those of you who've heard Mary on the opinion line and on the news on 96M over the years will, will know she's an energetic woman. She, she is driven by what she believes in and by getting truth for her past and truth for her mother. The, the deflation in her voice made me very sad. Uh, last night. 1850-715-996. We have more to come on this, particularly focusing again on the bodies unaccounted for in Besborough. Uh, damn near 900 of them. More than two them. Remember those words. More than two them. But first I want to uh, refer, I should have done this earlier on. Wayne, set it up there please if you can. The Taoiseach gave a press conference uh, yesterday afternoon on publication of the report. And here's some of the things that Michal Martin had to say. The report describes a dark, difficult and shameful chapter of very recent Irish history. And a history that has had a very real and lasting consequences for many people. It holds up a mirror to aspects of our past which are painful and difficult and from the present day perspective often hard to comprehend. The testimony of survivors set up by the Commission in their confidential report makes often harrowing reading, and I appreciate the depth of bravery of the survivors who shared their experiences. It opens a window onto a deeply misogynistic culture in Ireland over several decades, with serious and systematic discrimination against women. Now, Dietrich spoke for quite some time yesterday with regards, but that's, that's the bones of what he was saying. The apology is expected in the Doyle uh, today. That's, you see, people are still looking at the 2,800 and something pages of this report, and they are trying to sift through it, because the first thing you do when you get to it, or you get it into your hand, is you look at the relevant section with regard to yourself. As a journalist, the first thing you do is you try to read the executive st survey and then you, you go toward the executive summary and then you go through the various bits and pieces that you're, you're interested in focusing upon, which in my case, for example, was Besborough and the whole vaccine trials and the, and the executive summary. But if you're trying to read it as someone who was through it, it's a big 
tome. It really is a huge tome. And a lot of people won't have had time for it to, to settle in and, and to put their thoughts together. So for the Taoiseach to be standing up today and apologising now before people have had a chance to read it properly, it just seems a bit off to me. I think it seems a bit off to others as well. Getting back to the missing children of Besborough and that front page of the examiner, that's why it's so relevant. The missing children of Besborough. I'll get back to that next. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. The Cork's 96FM Giving for Living Radiothon is back. Our favourite fundraiser returns this May to raise money for Cork Cancer Services. We hope you'll include our Radiothon in your 2021 events calendar. There are many ways to play your part. Organise a virtual coffee break, a no uniform day, or gather all those loose coins with our change collector boxes. Stay listening for more details on how to raise funds. The 2021 Giving for Living Radiothon, May 20th to 22nd. Only on Cork's 96FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Now, the, the Besborough section of the Mother and Baby Homes report runs to 128 pages. Uh, and there's a lot of detail, a lot of detail. It, now, what is interesting about it, scanning it last night and this morning, is it goes through the entire chronological history of Besborough year on year from when it was even bought, from when the, the, the land and the house and was even bought. So it goes right back to the start and traces it all the way through. And then it has uh, personal testimonies from a number of women. They're referred only as A, B, C, right up to J and K of what they experienced in Mesborough. Now, on my own Twitter yesterday, at PJ Coogan, I uh, tweeted a link to that particular section uh, in fact, to the whole report, but I, I've got a, a link going up to Besborough, which I'll put up there uh, during the morning, so you can read the specific section for yourself if you have an interest. The The report refers in general to the massive number of deaths in the mother and baby homes. It says 9,000 deaths. Now, of that 9,000 deaths, over 900 of them, one in 10, happened at Besborough mother and baby home and at the moment and we've been following it for the last few months there is a a planning application in place to go in and build on a place where there might be 900 or up to 900 bodies buried and maybe listening to that and listening to the facts in the report if, if you haven't cared about this until now you may start to care about it would you like to think of houses or apartments going up onto lands where there could be up to 900 tiny bodies buried. And the reason we say could be is we do not actually know. Uh, the interim report of the Mother and Baby Home Commission brought this to our attention 
a couple of years ago. But the final report still indicates that we have no idea where these bodies are. Um, the Besborough Commemorative Committee, of which I'm very, very proud to be both part of and an advisor to, and we have a little event down there every June uh, to commemorate those who died uh, it, at, at the Besborough Mother and Baby Homes. Um, they have been campaigning on this for quite a number of years, as has the group uh, Know My Own. Now, Martin Parfrey is a founder of Know My Own and also a founder of the Besborough Commemorative Committee. And I spoke with Martin last evening. Martin, this report is not what people were hoping for, is it? It's not really. Um, it doesn't come down heavily enough on the people who inflicted the pain. Um, I noticed that some of the nuns involved are making out that they were heroes in the report. So, you know, it, does, it doesn't really go far enough. Now, one thing I am happy about, as you know, there are plans for developments in Besborough, which we're trying to stop until the place has been properly examined. Hmm. And I am happy that the report does acknowledge that some bodies are most likely buried in the grounds. Hmm. But it says that it would not be feasible to excavate 60 acres or the overall site, which was 200 acres. But I mean, I've said for a while that excavation may not be necessary. X-ray examination surely could be used, yeah. which would be faster, cheaper and easier. But no development can be allowed until something has been done. But at least the report does acknowledge that it probably is a burial ground. There's nothing in this report that prevents, actually prevents a bulldozer from moving in right now. There's not. No. Um, again, I read somewhere that Roderick O'Gorman is talking about introducing legislation that would stop any development at these mother and baby home sites. Until, you know, but again... There's nothing concrete. There's nothing definite. I'd love to see it happen, obviously. And, you know, I was looking at the figures in the report. They're slightly different to what I had up to now. They list 923 deaths. Um, and they say that the burial sites of 101 have been identified. Mm. That leaves 822 unidentified, which is actually more than the 796 at Chuam. The report also mentions 31 maternal deaths. So some of those bodies could be in the grounds there as well. Yeah. And, you know, they're talking now about reburial of the Chuam babies. The, the, the any babies are mothers, for that matter, who may be buried in the grounds of Besborough in unmarked graves. They deserve the same dignity and respect as the Chuam babies. Hmm as well as that you have families, mothers, and siblings. There are still some mothers alive who don't know where their babies were buried. Mm. The only way they'd ever get closure would be if they do find out where their babies were buried. And if the development goes ahead, that door would be closed forever. They know that they will never mm. get closure. When the interim report came out and those numbers were revealed, there was an expectation then that the final report that we now have in our hands might indicate that the, there was a need for a gather investigation or a need for examination. You must be very disappointed, Martin, that it doesn't go that far. I'm gutted. As I say, it, it, by right, it should be declared a potential crime scene. 
and it should. And there's absolutely no way that any development should be allowed. Board Tlalala, if they had any bit of decency, would see this and turn down the application. Now, I'd say the other application, the one that's gone to Cork City Council for the smaller development, I will be surprised if Cork City Council grant that planning. But I won't be surprised if on board Tlalala grant planning for the bigger development. But they shouldn't. There's no way. Development aside and, and legacies like that aside, as, as someone born down there, Martin, and hearing the stories that you and I, but you to a far greater extent, have heard from mothers and from the children themselves who were born down there, does this report leave you deflated? Does it leave you... How do, how do you feel on reading it? Well, you know, I, I've read bits there nowhere they're talking about referring to the kindness of the nuns and so on. I mean, we know the history there. We know that the attitude towards pregnant girls or women in Besborough was, well, you've had your fun, now you pay for it. Mm. And that was the mentality. We know that they weren't allowed any painkillers. We know that they weren't allowed stitches. They were deliberately set up to suffer for their their so-called massive sin. Um, and that, from, no, from what I've seen so far, I mean, obviously I'd be reading a lot more of the report over time, but I haven't seen anything that demonstrates that. Um, I've seen bits where they're talking about nuns there, explained that a child was not placed with the family immediately after a woman signed the Form 10, the congregation encouraged women to go home and to think about their decision. That's not what we've heard over the years. Yeah. What we've heard over the years was that they were given little or no option. Yeah. The the report uh, refuses to acknowledge anything to do with forced adoption. Well, it says there's no evidence of forced adoption. It, it says there's no evidence of children being adopted overseas and money changing hands. As a long-time activist, Martin, since the group Know My Own was set up back in 2001 or thereabouts, you've heard plenty that corroborates all of those stories. I have indeed. I mean, and do you know, no, they, they talk about consent, um, that the, all the women consented. They signed consent forms. I mean, I know somebody who I won't name who signed a consent form at 16 years of age, you know, when that form was worth absolutely nothing. The age of consent at the time was 21. She was five years below the age of consent. So that form surely couldn't have had any legal standing. And now, and now Martin, in, in these modern times, we also know that at 16... And having had a child, she was a victim of rape. And the report doesn't go there either. No, there's no mention of anything like that. No, I haven't seen whether or not there's any mention of the illegal adoptions, the wrongful registrations, like Tressa Reeves and so on. I presume there is something like that in there, but I haven't come across it yet. And, of course, one of the things that's absolutely disgusting is the fact, as I mentioned, Tressa Reeves, her son was illegally registered as the natural son of his adoptive parents in St. Patrick's Guild, one of the guiltiest of the institutions, and which wasn't even covered in the report. St. Patrick's Guild was excluded. Mm. 
which was shameful. Martin, where do we go from here? Michal Martin is due to make an apology. Is it worth anything? Well, I suppose an apology would be good. Um, you know, people are talking as well about financial recompense for victims. Um, what I'd much prefer to see is the opening of records, which Roderick O'Gorman does seem to have hinted at, that finally we'll get the opening of records that people will be able to trace much more easily. Um, you know, I mean, in my case, because of the difficulty in getting information, I failed to meet my birth mother. Yeah. She was five years dead by the time I found my family. Now, whether she would have been happy to meet me or not, I don't know. And I never will know because the opportunity didn't rise. That would be one of my big concerns. I'm not so worried. Forget the financial side of it. Get the records sorted. Get the legislation changed and free up the information so that people have easy access to it. I mean, this is the 21st century. We're still living in the 18th century where adoption is concerned except for the fact that there wasn't adoption then, but you know what I mean. Martin, I'll leave it there for today, and thank you very much. Thank you, PJ. Martin Parfrey. Uh, and the very personal story from Martin, that because he couldn't get at his birth cert, his documents, by the time he did find his mother, and, and trust me when I tell you, Martin had access to the best, the best search angel in the business, who shall remain nameless now, but everybody knows who she is. The best in the business, the one who taught tracers how to trace, worked on Martin's case and could not find his, his documents uh, for, for quite some time. Eventually she did, but that it was too late for him to, to meet or even to find out, you know, where his mother is and what happened what happened to her 1850-715-996 much more to come uh, on this uh, as, we, as we run into the uh, the morning uh, Roderick O'Gor- O'Gorman the Minister for Children has given a number of interviews last evening and, and again this morning the report makes it very clear that adopted people should have a right to their original births or to their documents uh, r- pertaining to them. Now, you can get your birth cert. You can, if you know how, and if you have someone to go and find it for you, but you don't have an automatic right to it. There seemed to be some indication from the minister that a, a referendum might be necessary. Well, if that's the case, then then let's be having it. Let's be having it. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. The drama is sensational. That's 80. Oh, he's done it. It's an equaliser. It's stoppage time. And it's all right here. Grealish for seven. Join me, Trevor Welch, on 96fm.ie for the Premier League Live online, powered by TalkSport. Go, go. Join us Saturdays as we bring you pre-match analysis with some of the biggest names in the game. Live commentary, exclusive interviews, and don't miss the post-match breakdowns. Go, go. Go, go. 
The Premier League Live Online with Now TV. Stream all the action from Sky Sports on the Now TV Sky Sports Pass. Listen every Saturday on the Cork's 96FM app or see 96FM.ie. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show, The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 996. On Cork's 96FM. The HSE has a national counselling service which is available Monday to Friday from half nine to five. And former residents of mother and baby homes can call that service directly. The number here in Cork is 1800-234-116. There's other numbers and other helplines available to people too, but that's the local one for Cork. 1800-234-116. This entire process, the process leading to this report, began with a newspaper story. Well, it began really with research incredible research by the wonderful Catherine Corliss who gathered together tons of detail about the children, the lost children of Tuam. And she and a journalist worked together to make that a front page story and it was that front page story in the Mail on Sunday that led to the report that we now have in our hands. And the journalist who wrote that story is Alison O'Reilly. Alison, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Thanks for having me on again. Delighted to do so, Alison. The report, you've no doubt had a chance to go through it, as have I, not, not in as much detail, I suppose, as we'd like to, but does it answer the questions that you began to ask in, in 2014? No. No, not at all, PJ, sadly. Um, look, I welcome the report. I welcome the investigation. Um, it's very important to have these things investigated, but there's been a huge amount of delays, a lot of problems with the reports, and uh, they ran two years over. Um, but, you know, as you, as you quite rightly said, the story began with 796 children buried in a septic tank in tomb. That story came out in May 2014. It's now January 2021, and we still don't know who those children are, where they are, or how many of them are there, or how many of them have been buried. I mean, we do know from this report a shocking statistic that there's 9,000 children who died between 1922 up to 1998 when these um, homes, institutions, closed. And uh, yes, the report for me, the first thing I wanted to look at was the graves. I knew that Shan Ras Abbey was having an excavation done and that the results of that would be in this report. I looked. I uncovered 1,024 names for children related to Shan Ras Abbey that died. And there were 817 registered names for Bespur, 212 for Castle Pollard. And I really wanted to know what the report was going to find in relation to those graves. It found, shockingly, that there's more than 40 graves in Shanras Abbey. They can't find any for, for Bespera, apart from one, I think. And then there's some babies resting in St. Finbar's. But it doesn't cover the hundreds that are missing. So the excavation in Tomb has not happened. It doesn't look like it's going to happen until 2022. So they say. So they say. Mm. I mean, it's already been... If, if it was done when they said they were going to do it, it'd be over and done with by now. Uh, Bespera is at a loss. They don't have a clue where their children are. Castle Pollard, well, they just assumed that they're buried at the back of the manor house. And Sean Ross Abbey, they found around 40 graves. I want to know 
where are all of Ireland's missing children? And how do you say that children weren't trafficked and illegally adopted? I know they said there's no evidence to prove or disprove, but what did they do to find out? When you haven't excavated these graves and you haven't gone to the ends of the earth to find them, then how do you know? Yeah. With regard to Besbra, and, and I, I said there before the break, Ali, that this is more than Chewham. There are more oh, yeah. children involved mm. here than Chewham. Mm. The report seems to indicate that there's no point in looking for these children. That's a, that's a huge letdown. And that's one of the questions I asked Minister O'Gorman yesterday at the press conference in government buildings. I said, how do you know children weren't falsified in debt to be illegally trafficked when you haven't found these graves to recover these children's remains, to identify them, to count them. Um, and But he gave me the impression that, you know, if uh, they were looking at Bessborough and if other excavations are required it's not something they're ruling out now he didn't specify anything and he wasn't held to anything but that was the broad terms of what he said that they weren't mm. ruling it out there could be other possible excavations and he highlighted mm. best yeah. the report though d- doesn't give any hope of that it kind of says it wouldn't wouldn't prove anything how do they know says you how does anybody know you know and and moreover with with bulldozers likely to move in this year or next to develop housing on Besborough, how important does it make it that we know for sure what lies beneath, Alison? Well, I mean, this is, this is absolutely appalling. I, I cannot understand that the people who allowed this to happen are now going to sell on and make profits where children may or may not be resting. We don't know and we won't know until somebody goes in and excavates or test excavates that land. I don't understand why they're not test excavating. That is what they did with Tomb. This is a more um, uninvasive approach where they can actually put down not just heat-seeking radars, they can actually take samples from the soil and they can actually check. So, you know, it doesn't require going in and fully excavating, but it can require test excavations, which can, which is, is very thorough. Uh, and it's before you start excavating anything. I don't know why that hasn't been done on the grounds of Bessborough because the survivors will tell you they believe that they have evidence that warrants much more investigations on that site. But for the nuns to be selling off land and then making profit where there's, even if there's one child, it's too much. Leave it there for today, Alison. Thank you very much for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96. And that's Alison O'Reilly, the journalist who working with the great historian Catherine Corliss, who have also had the privilege of, of, of speaking with. Uh, she broke that story back in 2014. Catherine Corliss said to me last year when I met her uh, that a Garda investigation is merited here of Bedsborough. Fergus Finlay, the former director of Barnardo's, said that their Garda investigation is definitely merited uh, of, of the Bessborough site. Let me go to Cullum on line three. Cullum, it's been a while since we spoke, lad. Um, would you agree it's a crime scene and needs to be investigated? Good morning. It's a, it's a graveyard, and when you don't know who's buried in the graveyard, usually the state would like to know who is dead and not dead. But obviously, because we were all bastards, nobody gives a damn. Our teacher yesterday uh, was disgraceful. 
the Minister for Children is the wrong name. He's Minister for Nuns because they seem to want to protect them and protect the government. And in, what, say, in what way did you think the Taoiseach was disgraceful, Colm? He implied that uh, because society was that way at that time, Asha, God love us, uh, we, uh, we understand and, and he'll stand up now today and he'll say, oh, I'm very sorry that happened to you. Would you kindly go away and leave us alone? That's the kind of apology I expect. What's your own story, Colm? I'm one of the best people. Um, I'm lucky I got out. They didn't kill me. Or they didn't sell me. Maybe I wasn't good enough to sell. <laughs> but, uh, so, I have, I, you were talking about 20 years. Listen, we were talking about this in the 60s in Cork. There are people who ended up in the Lee River. I don't think they're in the report. Yeah. There were 16, 70-year-olds that killed themselves. I know of three. Uh, so when people talk about this being a long time ago, yes, it is a long time ago, but every day you're alive, it's still the same. So it's not a long time ago. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. How do you feel uh, at, at, at the publication of this report, at least I, what you've had I, to it, read of it? Well, I'm lucky enough, my daughter downloaded it to the internet and uh, for me to have a look at it. And to say that I was getting, going even through the headlines and uh, reading a bit, and I haven't read it, I, I don't know whether I'll bother reading it because I think I'm convinced it's a cover-up. Now, I could have given evidence, and I think I was on to you at the time when they were setting this up. Yes. And I said, I'd have a look at it and see what it's like and whether I'd go and give evidence or not. I I'd see what they were, I, I'd see what they say about themselves. And I believed, to be honest with you, and I said it to you at the time, that this will come back and they will endeavor to whitewash the nuns and all the churches now. I shouldn't say nuns, just nuns, because all the religious crowds were involved. Uh, and they've whitewashed the government which they did, because the, the state gave passports to get babies out of this country. And right. one, of the re, one of the reasons they say, oh, they had no evidence of it, is because if, there is evidence there, obviously, but by admitting that they, they, they was, that it was done, they would then be liable for giving false, out, false passports, and the state will not admit that. Yeah. Yeah. Colin, also, the, the, the inspectors going into the schools from Cork County Council, I won't mention the woman I know of that worked in the Cork County Council. I hope she's dead and gone in hell by now. Uh, that they, they only spoke to the nuns. They never spoke to the children when they left there, which I did. I got, I got it boarded out, as they called it at the time. Yeah. I was lucky enough. I survived it all. I'm still alive today. And when I die, I hope to harm every last one of them. Colin, the Taoiseach mentioned that it was a societal failure. And I guess, do you have to give some credence to it? Because 
Yes, the state was involved. Yes, the church was involved. But so was the the bread man who delivered. So was the, the, the people who knew what was going on behind those walls and yeah, did or said nothing. Yeah, yeah. But you see, that's, you see he's, he's right when he says it was a society. But the state was part of the society who encouraged it. Yes. And paid these religious organizations an awful lot of money. So yeah. they encouraged it. So he can't say, oh, yeah, to somebody else's fault. You know? And then, as I said, I was very hurt yesterday. Really hurt. I didn't sleep very well last night because of it. I'm hurt for, for the ones that didn't survive, that are not here today to know what what I knew fucking 30, 40 years ago, right? I'm sad they, that I had, that they're not around to realize that uh, their state hated them, their church hated them, their religious organization hated them. We were an embarrassment to the state. And that's the people I feel sorry for. And... I wouldn't believe a word. If, Matt, if Martin told me today and now it was Wednesday, I wouldn't believe him. And if he stands up and apologizes today, I think he's a hypocrite. And if this Minister for Children, who says he believes the church's organization rather than the people who gave evidence, I think that's a disgrace. Colin, thank the, you. And as the, commission, the commission should come out and apologize for their report. Colm, you've always been a very strong contributor on it, and I thank you for being with us again yeah. today. Yeah, listen, I'll, survive, I'll survive them. I've survived yeah. this long, and I'll, I'll survive without them. No thanks right. to my government or any religious organisation. The Opinion Live with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. Remember, if you missed any of our first hour this morning, or indeed if you miss any part of the program any particular morning, where's your note from your parents to say you're entitled to be absent? But beside that, we do podcast the show every afternoon. goes up as early as we can get it up in the afternoon. You'll get the link first if you follow us on Twitter at OpinionLine96. Then it goes on to the Cork's 96FM app or any platform that you care to get it. And someone... Uh, message me on Twitter last night oh, can they get it in the north of Ireland you can get it in North Korea if you can get our app so you can get that podcast anywhere you want uh, at any time you want once it's available to you in mid-afternoon 1850-715-996 the number the text or WhatsApp is 083-396-9696 the email opinion at 96fm.ie pages and pages and pages of messages uh, get the nuns, get the priests, get everyone involved and lock them up. But we won't because it's Ireland and we can't prosecute the church, says Kevin. All this with the mothers and babies, it's so heartbreaking. How can all the atrocities that have happened with the churches of so many faiths, how can we believe in any religion? Well, you know, there are so many people of very strong faith that I know in my life. And I wouldn't mention by name, but one of them has already been on the show this morning. People of very strong faith and very strong devotion to their faith. They are able to separate one from the other. 
uh, and I think that's important that we all do when they can. While I was visiting my aunt in a nursing home, an old lady who sat at the same table called Mary, she lived next to Besbra. She kept saying the babies are buried in the woods next to the old footbridge over the railway. Mary has now died, but her story stays with me. Besborough was closed in 1945 and Fianna Fáil reopened it. Michal Martin should apologise for his party's part in that first. And that was when the chief medical officer of the time, uh, if you like, the, the, the Tony Holohan, or Holohan of the time, uh, Professor James Deeney, he wanted Besborough closed down because of the number of deaths and the, and the terrible state of the place. And it didn't happen. And so whoever sent in that is, is right. What a shower we have in government on the day the report was issued that took the opportunity to reinstate Jerry Buttimer and co. to their cushy numbers as they planned. It's not getting headlines in media. Yeah, it was a great day to, to bring them back in, wasn't it, when this was out? Um, you could bring them in under the, under the cloud, as it were or under the radar, rather. John Lennon, hi John, it occurred to me in relation to this dreadful whitewash report that came out yesterday, the people should issue a high court injunction against the nuns selling the Bespra lands. Go the legal route, you'll get no comfort from the politicians. 1850 Now there was a series, in fact a number of seasons of a series called Adoption Stories uh, on TV3 or Virgin Media TV as it is now. The producer of that uh, was Sharon Lawless. She subsequently went on to write a superb book based on the series, and she joins me now. Sharon, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. How are you? Delighted to have you on the show. Um, how, do, how am I? I'm very cross, Sharon. Yeah. I'm very disappointed in what I've been reading. Let's focus, because it's what you did for the television, let's focus on the adoption element of this, and in particular, where... The report says there's no evidence of forced adoption. Like, that doesn't stand up. It doesn't stand up because, you know, I've seen it, you've seen it, um, you know, a whole load of people have seen it, and we have the people themselves giving their, their own experience of it. Um, uh, and, of course, you know, you've got to remember as well, a lot of evidence was hidden. Um, a lot of things weren't recorded, or they were recorded falsely. So... In instances uh, within the report where they're saying they can't find evidence of, you know, I suppose it wasn't set up to do it in a particular way, but it would have been nice maybe to know what they couldn't find evidence of and then maybe we would have been able to supply it to them, you know? Yeah, yeah um, because it is out there. It is out there, but, you know, again, this is something that I, I raised last night. The, the terms of reference are so narrow that maybe they couldn't find evidence of certain things within their uh, their brief of 18 institutions. I mean, there were mm. an awful lot more than that. Um, and it's funny what ones they, they chose to, um, to investigate and what ones they left out, because definitely there was evidence of an awful lot of things that were going on in other institutions that weren't included, like St. Patrick's Guild. Yes, the, 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 the so-called de facto adoptions. Explain for listeners what that, because there were thousands of those. Yeah, well, I, I suppose anything up until, um, you know, 1952, the 1952 Act was considered a de facto adoption. But then illegal adoptions um, were um, carried out through St. Patrick's Guild, which was announced by the government uh, with shock and awe in 2018. But 
we had exposed it several times on adopting stories. Uh, Connell of Arda had reported it several times in the examiner. Um, and the government were aware of it for decades because they were made aware of it by the people affected. So in that situation, you would have um, a woman who was uh, giving birth, went to a private nursing home most of the time, um, was referred by a social worker who might have been connected, well connected, and uh, gave birth in the private nursing home. Um, either signed consent forms, um, which disappeared, or didn't find any consent forms, left the nursing home and the child was handed over to an adopting couple. Um, no formal adoption took place. There's no paperwork whatsoever about adoption. And they just took the baby and registered them in the uh, GRO as their own child and had them baptised as their own child. So yeah. there's no paperwork anywhere to say that this particular woman gave birth to this particular child. Yeah. And that was rampant. I mean, it's something that I'm doing a lot more work on at the moment. Um, I have a documentary coming up about illegal adoption. And when I started on it, you know, people said, oh, yeah, they're all the babies that went to the States, which is another day's work. Um, but these were people here. And yeah. they were. it was all facilitated by a network of doctors, midwives, social workers, judges, you know, the politicians. Mm. And it would make you question why that was excluded. And also St. Patrick's Guild. I mean, there are, I've seen some of the files from St. Patrick's Guild. I would imagine there are an awful lot more than, you know, the hundred odd people that they said they had found to be illegally adopted. Because mm. I know one person who was legally adopted and he didn't have that, that label on the front uh, was it um, adopted from birth or something? I think yeah. was the yeah. 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 He was yeah. he was sent to um, he was allowed to leave the country and go to South Africa. Um, was never adopted. His parents paid five hundred pounds to the nuns for the facility, um, and uh, when it was discovered, the government tried to get him back, but it was too late. Yeah. So you know the evidence is there. I yes. don't know why they couldn't find it because I found it, you found it, Connell found it. You yeah. know, the, the, not that the, hard. You mentioned you mentioned the consent matter, and and Martin Parfrey already outlined to us one case that he knows of a woman who was only sixteen when they put a consent form in front of her. When at a time the the age of consent was twenty one. But something mm -hmm. else that occurred to me, Sharon, and again this is coming from people I've spoken to directly, both on and off the radio. Many of these misfortunate women could not read or write. How could they knowingly sign anything? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, the, when I raised this years ago, because um, I, I think I know the woman that Martin is talking about, and it was raised in the very first series of adoption stories. And she didn't want to sign the consent forms. Um, and she raised the point that legally that adoption was illegal that she could challenge that. But the problem with all of this is that where do you go with it? Who has mm. the money to take on that kind of challenge? Um, you know, who has the money to go and prove that they, that they didn't have, um, you know, the powers to give full consent? Um, and that has been a reason why a lot of these issues haven't been followed up on because people are afraid to try and go the legal route because... 
They don't have the money to. The outcomes of other cases so far haven't been particularly helpful. Um, so, you know, a woman who wasn't able to read and write, I mean, who did she have representing her? Mm. You know, if she was mm. if she was young and she wasn't able to read or write, who was there for her? One of the nuns is quoted in the Besborough section of the report as saying, well, we explained Form 10 to them and we told them what was there and gave them their options. Sure, you could have been reading out a shopping list because the poor girl had no idea what was down in front of her. Yeah, and even apart from that, I mean, I was taught by nuns at school and um, I would imagine in that scenario, if a nun was explaining something to you and giving your options, um, you kind of knew what your option was and that was to follow what the nun told you to do. You know, like what girl was going to stand up to a nun and, you know, say, well, no, actually, I don't want to sign this. I want to leave with, with my baby and, you know, and be able to do that. That just well, wasn't the way it was. We also know, Sharon, of too many cases, and again, we, you and I have both spoken to them, of women who had that conversation only to wake up the following morning and find their baby gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And it's, it's unbelievable cruelty, you know? Um, but it was, it was done at the time and it was accepted and, you know, that was the fear that you had. What do you make of Michal Martin's claim yesterday that it was all... It was all of society that everybody knew. That doesn't excuse it, but do you agree with him? No, I don't. Um, I do think that, the, you know, certainly, I mean, as recently as the early 90s, um, you know, adoptions were still going on. And, and I know if you heard somebody was, was expecting, you kind of, you know, adoption was still a big option there, you know. Um, and... You know, they, they weren't regarded that well, put it that way. Um, but I do think that, that society rejected women um, and I think that they treated women very badly who were pregnant. But I don't think that society has to, you know, should carry all the blame. Um, I mean, the women didn't go to nice, warm, caring institutions to have their children and be well looked after the way you know, pregnant women are now because we understand the importance of good health and good mental health and looking after the baby and giving the baby the best opportunity to thrive. That didn't happen. So I I think that society does have to carry um, some of the blame, but it's absolutely unacceptable that everything is laid at the feet of society. Uh, And another thing that, and I don't know if you've covered this already, another thing that I think was was brought up in the report was that there was no evidence of the the nuns making any money out of the whole process. I mean, Mm. that's laughable. Absolutely laughable. Children, a stipend was paid for every child. And I know one person, a close friend, whose family sent donations every Christmas and every Easter and pretty much every feast day of the of the patron saint of the home because they were getting letters saying, look, we we need money and sure, didn't you get a lovely child from us? Yeah, I've seen those letters too. And you're right, uh, I mean, particularly in the States where adopting uh, couples were sending these donations for decades until maybe their their children decided to to go looking for their their roots in Ireland and discovered what had been going on here, and maybe the circumstances of their adoption, and went back and said to their parents, "Listen, donations stop now." 
uh, there was an awful lot of money made out of, of adoption in general and mm-hmm. having women in institutions. Sharon, your, your new documentary on the illegal adoptions, when can we expect to see that? Um, it's been kind of a slow burner for quite a while. Um, I think it, it might move forward fairly quickly now. So I would say maybe towards the end of this year, the beginning of next year. Okay. Um, it'll take a while, but I'm, I'm also going to um, be starting a podcast very shortly. Um, just maybe to explain, you know, more of, of, of what happens around adoption. And again, using the, the people who actually have had the experience to, you know, use their voices. They're well able to talk. They're well they able are indeed. To, to stand up they for are themselves. Indeed. I, I look forward to hearing that, and as soon as it's ready, uh, do let us know. Please give my regards to Sir Alfred. I will. And, uh, <laughs> And we'll talk, we'll talk again soon. Sharon Lawless, thank Thanks you very much. Producer of Adoption Stories on Virgin Media, uh, or TV3 as it was at the time. And she wrote an excellent book about it, which you should be able to pick up. Uh, of course, everything is online now, but you should be able to pick up a, a copy of Adoption Stories. Another book that I would very heartily recommend when they talk about the banished babies, the, the children who were sent to America, uh, and the fact that the report says that they, they have no proof that it was or no proof that it was, wasn't uh, done illegally. Uh, a book I recommend very heartily, and you'll find it with little difficulty, it's out there, is it's called Banished Babies. It was written by Mike Malott, a former RTE journalist, wrote a stunning book, a frightening, a book that will make you cry, I promise you. It would make a tree trunk cry. He wrote a book uh, about the banished babies, the ones who were sent abroad, and it's, he'll find it and, and read it because I'm, I'm very doubtful that the people in the commission actually read it. 1857-15996. Another woman we spoke to yesterday off air after the report was published, she told us she gave birth to her son in Besbra in 1978. She remembers being in labour for 14 hours. She was put in her room and just left there. They ignored her and told her to get on with it. Her son was adopted, and on the day he was taken from the home, she was taken into Cork City, and when she returned, he was gone. She says he's, she's only coming to terms now with the shame she was made to feel. She's now trying to deal with the decision and trying to figure out whether she should go and try to contact him. And it's a woman I'd love to speak to at some point soon, but she's not ready to speak just yet. But she did give us that account of her experience. 1850-715-996. Before I finish, we will come back to this. We will come back to this later in the morning. But just a couple of very personal experiences of my own. One to do with the nuns uh, and how the nuns treated people in in their search for uh, their past and their search for their file. I attended a meeting with a friend as her advocate a number of years ago. Uh, she knows who she is if she's listening. I attended the meeting with her as her advocate, but before I attended that meeting, I, I got in touch with the search angels that I knew, and we got everything. We got birth cert, we got a rough location, on where her mother was. We got details of where her mother had gone after uh, she was... You can find all these in public records. You can find marriage records and birth records and all these kind of things. We had all of the information and we had a fairly good handle on where her mother would be. So armed with this information, we went into a meeting in Besbra with two nuns 
and we had a list of questions. And my friend, I sat there quite silently. My, my, I know you might be surprised I did. My friend began to ask the questions. And in the first six questions, the nun on the other side of the table blatantly lied four times. And I then intervened. I said, sister, I said, we have asked you six questions and you have lied four times. And we put the information on the table and she told us or tried to tell us it was illegal to have it. So that's what went on. That's one of the reasons they, to this day, they're, 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 they're not fond of me in Besbro. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. Cork's 96FM has identified many advantages to wearing a face mask. Save time and money by only having to do eye makeup. Forgot to shave? No problem, you're covered. And it's easier to avoid an ex because they probably won't recognise you. However, the main reason for wearing a face mask is the most vital to help stop the spread of coronavirus. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Social distance. We're masking for a friend. Thank you. From Cork's 96FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. Okay, I propose to temporarily park our coverage and reflection an analysis of the Mother and Baby Homes report. I will return to it, I promise, before the end of the programme. But there's other stuff that we want to get to. Got a video. We tagged into a video. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Last night on Facebook, um, the video that was filmed by a guy called, called Andrew. Wayne, you can roll that audio. Here's the video we got last night. So guys, this is fire from my front door. Thanks to people littering here every single day. Sparks coming inside the front door now. Group of teenagers used to hang out every single day of the week across the road. have destroyed the house across the way. Guards are in here every week just to check if they're up to no good, as they usually are. I don't see any councillors coming around wanting to help out any time. They know what's happening, but they just turn a blind eye because of where we live. show you how close this fire is. This is my front door. This is the fire. So lads, 
Calling any concert TD in my local area to try and help the press. Littering's been done three to four nights a week. Everybody inside the council know how often they have to come out and collect rubbish. But there and over there. So, if any of you want to help us in Cushion Place, I'm asking, please do something. Stop sitting on your hands. Do something. Andrew, good morning. Hey, how's it going, PJ? How are you? That was that was outside your garden wall, and the video shows clearly sparks being blown in on the wind. It's very frightening. That that could have landed in your bin or anything. Yeah, exactly. And below us, there's a single as well, and he does have uh, two coverings there, and the sparks were landing on that. So equally as worried for the neighbour below me, you know. How frequent is this? Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'd say if you got onto the records of the council to see how often a fire brigade has been called out in the last three years, <laughs> I'd say you could easily say 20 to 30, maybe 40 times. Without naming any names, please don't. Do you know who's doing it? Oh, well, I wouldn't know their names anyway. Do you know, look, it's, it's very typical antisocial behaviour by teenagers, you know. They're not from the area. They come from other parts of Farnray down to hang out there because they had driven out the couple that lived in that house previously. They had lit a fire by that and they had to evacuate due to smoke damage. They never returned and subsequently the house has never been filled by anybody else. So Mm. they just kind of made it their hub. It's covered in graffiti. They've ripped off the ESB box for the house numerous times and lit it alight. Constantly lighting fires there. I feel sorry for the duplex above them because like what has happened with me last night, it's happened with them on more than 10 occasions, I'd say. Mm-hmm. You say your local councillors are well aware. Yeah, like there's been, uh, like Charlene Lynch there, another local here, has sent numerous emails over the years um, to councillors. Now she's in very good contact with uh, Ken Collins and he's been working tirelessly for the area as well himself. They've, kind of set up nice, try to set up nice amenities around there with flower beds and so on and for things for the kids to do, like cinema nights and whatnot, but at the end of the day it still comes down to teenagers just doing what they want, you know? Mm, mm. And again, obviously that comes down to, as well, people coming down in the middle of the night dumping rubbish, which happens three nights a week easily. Like, we think sometimes when we hear about illegal dumping and, and the dumping of rubbish, we, we think that it's about fellas driving out into the country and horsing it over a ditch into a field. But it's not. They're coming up there into the middle of a residential area and dumping it. Exactly. And sure, then, of course, that's going to create uh, antisocial behaviour with teenagers. They see something lying around, yeah, come on, let's light it, you know? Yeah. You have to you have to wonder why 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 they are driven to set fire to things like that, but but that's how it is. Now you have a very active residents association, which from reading a document from the residents are blue in the face from trying to get something done about this. Exactly. Look, they are on to the council all the time. As I say, councillors such as um, Ken Collins have been trying his best, but it's the council that aren't listening. Like I now have three within. 20, 30 yards of my house, three houses available to be lived in. Mm. One was just, uh, they left on the start of December. All someone had to do from the council was send someone in to see if it was livable. Yeah. That's all they had to do. You could have a new family in there right now. And you have two other houses across the way and both boarded up, uh, both being vandalised. Easy, send somebody in, 
get these desks cleaned up, get families living in them. A lot cheaper mm. than getting a house built. This is something we've been talking about on the opinion line for, for years, Andrew. The voids, as they call them, and how they sit idle for months and, and years on end in the middle of, of a housing crisis. Here you are telling me that there's three in your eye line. Yep. Wow. Well, well, of course, it does three families this. happy there now. Nobody living in hotels or on the streets, you know? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I, I wonder if bringing it to the media will will help in any way. I well, suppose like, the, the, the dread fear is that someone will actually be hurt or worse. That, that's it. Like the house across the way, like when they light those fires, there's a very real chance of that catching on to that family above. Like, I don't want to be the one to blame. Do you know, I like at the end of the day, it'll come down to inaction by the council. I would be fully blaming if that house above burnt down with the family inside. My blame would be on council for sitting on their hands and doing absolutely nothing after they've been asked for over three years. I've emailed forward on to me there by Charlene that she's been sending in for over three years. Nothing done. Nothing. Nothing done. Nothing. All right. Leave it there for now, Andrew. We'll highlight it like this. Might might bring some response. If any councillor for the area wants to give us a call, they can do so at 1850 Andrew, leave it there. And thank you very much. That video shared with us last evening up there, Cushing, Cushing Place. Three, and it raises two issues. First of all, the antisocial behaviour and burning bags of litter. And if you look at the video, the sparks are coming over the wall into his garden. It's only a matter of time before there's someone hurt. But on the other side of it, we've been doing this Voids story for years now on the Opinion Line. And counting the number of empty houses and the number of boarded up houses. And we were told time and time again by council, oh, we're dealing with the voids, oh, we're dealing with the voids, we're sorting out the voids. There's three of them that he can see from his own front gate. And they're just drawing trouble. 1850-715-996. Listen, we're inundated with comment this morning on, on Besbra and the report. Remember the other book written about Besbra, Light in the Window, written by a midwife who worked in the home. Oh, I remember it only too well. Uh, I read both editions of it and I had the privilege of interviewing the lovely, the wonderful and now sadly the late and departed June Goulding. I travelled to visit her in her home in North Cork uh, a number of years ago. I may still have that interview somewhere. If I can find it, I'll certainly bring it to, to listeners, uh, a snatch of it. But yes, she was a midwife who worked in Besborough in the 50s and uh, she documented what she'd seen in a book and then in later years she updated the book and after she updated the book they tried to sue her uh, they didn't get anywhere but but they did and uh, that light in the window by Jude Goulding you can still pick that up actually quite easily online there's copies of it out there the report said, states they found no evidence of forced adoption the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence that's a nice little adage I've forgotten it it's as old as the hills that one the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence and Eugene says in marine law there are stipulations about disturbing a wreck where there are bodies surely the same should apply to the land around Besborough one of the long-time campaigners and a dear, dear friend of mine. He was one of the first to begin to campaign for proper access to records. He's the founder of the group Know My Own, 
and I'll talk to him next. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on the side. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's Entertainment. Irish indie rockers The Zen Arcade are just one of the bands playing live at Cypress Avenue as part of its Winter Song series. You can catch them performing on Cypress Avenue's Facebook page this coming Friday, January 15th. Access all areas. Rescheduled from April 2020, comedian Milton Jones returns to Cork with his new show, Milton Impossible. The new show will take place at Cork Opera House on Tuesday, April 27th, with tickets on sale now from corkoperahouse.ie. Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show coming up in 2021 or any live streaming events by emailing AAA at 96fm.ie. Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. So a small history lesson, I think, for, for listeners to uh, the opinion line. Back in the early noughties, it would be around 2001, 2002, the minister responsible for children and by dint of that responsible for adoption was Mary Hannifin. And Mary Hannifin drafted the heads to a bill. It never got to be law. It never got to be law. But she drafted the heads to a bill which would have made it a criminal offence for someone to trace their birth mother or indeed for a mother to trace her child using, shall we say, the public records, using the channels that we, at the time, people were beginning to get very good at using. Mary Hannifin was threatening to criminalise that back in the early noughties. And, And a man from the north side of Cork City put up his hand and he said, I'm a lifelong card-carrying member of Fianna Fáil, and up with this I will not put. I absolutely will not put up with this. His name was Tom Welch, and he founded Know My Own. Tom, good morning to you. Good morning, Peter. Tom, how are you feeling reading the Besbra section of this report? In one word, upset. Very upset, if I may say. Because yeah. what, what I see in it is... Oh, a combination of, of dreadful cruelty and, and you know, if, if I may use the expression, dreadful cruelty used by people who call themselves the brides of Christ on women who are unfortunate enough to be pregnant outside marriage. And, uh, you know, it's a human situation that the pregnant women were in it was an inhuman treatment they got from people who should have known better. That's all. Tom, if that makes sense. It, yeah. it, it makes absolute sense. When when you read the report, what did you have? What what hopes did you have before you got the report yesterday? Based on what we saw in the interim reports, what did you hope for? Truth and full admission of liability where that's appropriate but truth, look in, in, in the context of Besborough there were give or take 900 babies disposed of in unmarked graves and nobody knows where they are There's the, the nuns in Besborough say that in, in, in one case that I know of 
one none in, in particular admitted to being aware of one debt mm. where in fact there were 960 or so dead babies down there apart from some dead mothers as well yes and i, I mean look i in, in my early life I, I i lived for a while in community and if you're in a community situation there's no secret if, if I may say, within the community. Because mm. whatever happens is known by everybody. It might be something small to an outsider, but to a person in the community, it's big. Now, in the Besborough community, 900, in excess of 900 babies died, and none of them knew it? I just cannot believe that. And when I say truth, I would ex- have expected the truth. And what, what did I get? An acceptance of falsehood. Yeah, that's 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 part of where I'm coming from. I'm, the I'm the report reading. recommends or doesn't make any recommendation with regard to the to, to Besborough, other than suggesting that it would there wouldn't be much point in searching. That is complete nonsense. There is a designated area supposed to be the graveyard of the dead babies down near the, the folly that they destroyed and had to rebuild recently uh, within Besborough. Now, in terms of search, look, I'm involved with the National Ex Servicemen and our particular group managed to find, uh, be part of the finding of the body of Thomas Kent in in the prison yard of Cork Jail. Now, it was a military jail when Kent was shot dead. But we found his body using electronic gear that didn't have to cut a blade of grass. And the body was found with, uh, without difficulty and identified properly in all the rest of it. So yeah. that's one case where the electronic surveillance, which is available, was used. The same surveillance could be used in Besborough without disturbing a blade Yet, yeah. nobody seems able to do it, or able to, nobody seems to want to do it. And there are 900 babies buried somewhere in that ground. There's a, an ordnance survey map. No, I, I, uh, I was always of the belief that ordnance survey maps were legal documents. Mm. There is a registered ordnance survey map indicating quite clearly children's burial ground. Yes, there is. And yet, that is the patch, or it's part of the patch in, intended for redevelopment and building on. No, in other words, builders are being given the clearance to build on top of possible and probable burial sites of over 900 babies. It's, it's, it's beyond belief. And again, the politicians will weave words around that and, and draw smoke screens here, there, and elsewhere. But why not get the electronic surveillance done? It can be done quickly. It needn't delay anybody into if they're in a big money to make money, in a big rush to make money. Mm. But uh, the, the whole thing sickens me, quite honestly. Yeah. Apart altogether from the individual reports that I'm aware of, in terms of yeah. cruelties visited on, on, on girls who are in, 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 in the act of giving birth, yeah. yet given and no relief at all 
to help them. And in your work with, with No My Own and in the meetings we've all attended over the years, some of those stories are, are beyond horrifying. They, they, they are. In, in my introduction, Tom, I reminded listeners that at the time, I don't know whether you still are, but at the time you set up No My Own, you were a card-carrying lifelong member of Fianna Fáil. Micheál uh, Martin uh, will stand uh, up today yeah. and apologise. What do you think? His apology is hot air if it does not carry specific and definite uh, in indications, indications of the wrong word. I, I don't want an apology that says, uh, plays the words and does nothing. What is needed now, apart from anything else, is that all adopted people in this country be treated with the dignity they deserve as human beings and not be treated as, as children of sin and, and to be you know, put down, so to speak. The, if, if an adopted person, you have Martin Patry on there a while ago, he's adopted. People like him, and there are thousands of them, if, if, if a person adopted wants to find who their, where their roots are, they should be given every facility and all information available within the records that deals, information that deals with them to help them find who they are. I mean, the group we founded had a musician within the group who had spent 40 years searching for his mother. Yeah, Oliver. And we, yeah. Exactly. And, and we, we managed to, to, to help him to find her. Yes. No, yes. he put up a, a, a song about the whole thing, and he, he mentioned, don't they understand that all I want is to know my own Hence, the, hence, hence, hence that's the where the, the title of the group came from. No, can my I ask own. you a personal question to finish, You can, Tom. of course, yes. I've known you for many years. You, you are a man of very deep faith and, 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 and a devout practitioner of your faith. Is your yeah. faith shaken by the behaviour in these places? My faith, no. But what is triggered is anger at people who present themselves as... Uh, leaders within the faith and who've done things that have drawn disrepute on my my, my, my faith. Look, these people, this might be a hard thing to say, but it's the way I'm thinking at the minute. I, I'm referring a lot to religious of all types, male and female, who have blocked adopted people trying to find information that's of their information. Now, Look, nuns, uh, as a friend of mine, a priest used to refer to them as regulated women because uh, the Irish for a nun was ban realta. Uh, and, you know, it's a, a fair point. I'm, I'm waffling, I know, but the way I think about these people and my religion is what would Jesus Christ say to them if he walked in right now? I mean, I think Jesus Christ spoke to a woman who was taken in adultery. And what he said to her, did any of them blame you or accuse you or charge you? No, she said, neither will I. Yeah. Neither will I. Tom, I leave it there. And, and, and thank you very much for that. Uh, Tom Welch, uh, founder of, of No My Own. 1850 Such 
dark news this morning and so many sad people on the radio and we will have more I have no doubt about it but I want to uh, go to some good news that broke yesterday uh, a story that we have been following um, for a number of weeks and months now South Dock on the north side to reopen Thomas Gould of Sinn Féin Thomas good morning to you Good morning PJ It has happened or will happen Yes I suppose, PJ, firstly, I just I was listening to some of your uh, contributors this morning and the survivors, and I just want to say that at this stage, no, the government and everyone involved have to support and help and have openness with the survivors. It's all about their needs. And so I just wanted to say that. Uh, also, in relation to South Dock, brilliant news, great news that I received from the HSE yesterday. As you know, for months I've been fighting and campaigning to get South Dock and Blackpool reopened. And uh, I've been contacting the Taoiseach, the Minister for Health, the HSE, South Dock. I raised in the dial numerous times and I asked the Taoiseach. And finally yesterday, after four emails and five phone calls yesterday, I got a response back from the HSE to confirm that South Dock Blackpool will be opened next Monday. Which is a great breakthrough. And it's so important to people. It just goes to show what we can do when people walk together, people sign petitions, and to yourself in the opinion line and, the, and all the staff and to the newsroom in '96, because it was publicity, both local and social media, and me raising it in the dial, all of us together working to get this, because it's a vital service for the north side mm. of Cork and for the people of the north side. It's really good news. Tom, can I, can I impose on you for one moment? We spoke there with Andrew a while back about Cushing Road and what's effectively neglect of Cushing Road, antisocial behaviour, fires, and people, their, ho- their homes are in danger. What's going on up there? Please, this is happening in numerous places right across the city. Um, just to let people know, like Andrew, Councillor Kenny Collins and Mick Nugent went down and met Andrew last night. We, I was hosting a meeting on the M20, and the minute it was over, they, they went down uh, to meet with Andrew and to look at what Andrew and the people down there are going through. Kenneth Collins only lives across the road, not 50 yards from it. We're constantly on to the council in relation to Andy Gardy, in relation to groups, gangs of young fellas, a couple of gangs of young fellas down there now, who are causing havoc for the people who live there. See, I think and the big fear in Andrew's voice this morning, Thomas, is, you know, like, will it take somebody being injured or property damaged or worse for something to actually happen here? But PJ, we know that some families have been forced out of their homes by these gangs, that people have felt so threatened in the homes that they've just packed up and they're left. And like Andrew described it there on the, with you earlier on, like, people being targeted because they're living in corner houses or because there's gangs hanging around. And PJ, all this goes back to issues I spoke to you about numerous times. We need Gardy on the ground to tackle these gangs. And PJ, I spoke to you before, I want um, I want a target, an action group set up with the guards, the city council, Toosled, the fire brigade. They should meet weekly and identify the areas and the people who are causing these, and then tackle them head-on. And unfortunately, I raised this at the last policing forum, and I've been raising it for the last few years, and it's been turned down again. And I believe we need this action forum to tackle these individuals. And if they're council tenants, they'll have to be warned, or they'll have to be put out. 
And if they're not willing to change their behaviour, the Gardaí in the court will have to move on them. OK, I'll leave it there because I'm very short of time. Thomas, thank you very much. That's Thomas Gould, Sinn Féin TD for Cork North Central. Very briefly before we go to the news, I, I don't believe what I'm seeing in front of me. Health Minister Stephen Donnelly has been giving an interview this morning regarding the reopening of society pre-Christmas when they were told not to do it. He said, are you listening? If we knew then what we know now, government would have made different decisions. They were told what would happen. Told. Ah, give me a break. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. 1850-715-996, the number to call, the text to WhatsApp, 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. Twitter at opinionline96 with the hashtag OL96. And you can contact us always through the Cork's 96FM Facebook page. Pop us a message, but do mark it for the attention of the Opinion Line. We are going to move away from the Besber Report or the Mother and Baby Homes report for a while. I've no doubt that we will return to it in, in future days. But, and if we may get back to it before the end of the show. But we have other stuff to do, including uh, one woman's story about her mum suffering from COVID-19. And you know that argument that is you get on social media from time to time, Asher, it is only a flu. I think when you hear her story, it's anything but a flu, and that kind of nonsense needs to be squashed down and stamped out. It's only a flu, anything but. Also, there's a new website you can go to now to calculate, put in your date of birth and some more details about what you do for a living and calculate when you might get your vaccine. Yep, it look, they'll come up with apps for everything. That's all to come before 12 o'clock today. But first of all, I want to talk about obesity and I want to talk about trauma. Now, you'd wonder why am I talking about the two together? Because there's quite an amount of research out there now that suggests that people who live with obesity, suffer from obesity, live with obesity, people who struggle with their weight that a lot of it is to do with trauma in their lives. And a couple of reasons why we wanted to, to touch upon it. First of all, a lot of people will be dieting as we head into the new year, trying to get rid of the COVID stone and the Christmas stone that has arrived on top of it. And they'll be wondering why they, they yo-yo up and down, why they can't lose weight and leave it, leave it there, get you know lose it forever. Uh, they, they wonder why they snack badly or eat badly or that kind of thing. And, and, and they're thinking, what, what is it about me that I can't trim down? What is it about me that I'm not motivated to, to look my best or to feel my best or to, to, to eat and exercise properly? There's a lot of research going on about that. And some people, it's down to trauma in, in their lives. Louise George is a researcher uh, who works for a, a program called Eating Freely. And she, she joins me now. I've also, you've also worked, Louise, I think, in eating disorder services in the UK for many years for people recovering from anorexia and, and bulimia. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. I'll just clear up one thing. I'm not a researcher. Um, okay. I'm a counsellor. 
And yeah, so I worked in the UK for about 10 years in in eating disorders services in the health service there. Um, And since I've moved to Ireland, I've actually been running a yoga studio. I'm actually a a yoga teacher, but I'm also still a counsellor and I work for, as you said, the Eating Freely team, which offers a programme for people with emotional eating. How much of disorders like anorexia, bulimia that you've worked with how much of that, when you get to the, the root cause, how much of it comes from, from early life trauma? I think there's a huge amount. And I think the, the thing about trauma is trauma is really a, a distressing or a disturbing experience. So it might be something like physical or sexual abuse. You know, it could be witnessing abuse going on in the family But it can also be things that are very invisible, like neglect and feeling abandoned or feeling rejected. So it's kind of difficult to put your finger on exactly what a trauma is. But basically, it's an experience that is distressing and that overwhelms the person's kind of what we call psychological resources. You know, they don't have the resources to deal with that stress. And if you think about a child, you know, they don't have they don't have the ability to make sense of what's going on around them. And so, you know, oftentimes that trauma that they experience, which might not even have words because it might be happening when they're so young, um, is is held in the body. And so, you know, we we try to soothe those feelings in the body when they're triggered, and food is a, a way of doing that, really. Yeah. So effectively, trauma is kind of anything that happens at any stage in life, doesn't necessarily have to be childhood, that you don't have the resources, the psychological yeah. resources to deal with. Yeah. And I mean, even you just, you know, thinking about COVID, there, we're all living through a very traumatic time right now. And those COVID pounds that maybe we've all gained are maybe a reaction to that trauma. We're trying to look after our nervous system. We're trying to soothe ourselves. We're, we're trying to get through. And then this idea of putting yourself on a strict diet in January to lose that feels to me very harsh and is likely to fail, you know. Um, I mean, if, if pounds are gained just because maybe we haven't been exercising as much or our lifestyles have changed, then perhaps, you know, a diet might work. But generally, they tend to not. I think there's something like, I think they say in terms of resolutions even, about 9 to 10% of resolutions actually work. So we're setting ourselves up for failure right from the get-go, you know. Mm. You mentioned COVID, and it's an interesting path to go down. It is traumatic on all of us. We've all been through a very traumatic 11, nearly 12 months now. And, and one of the things with regard to eating is you're sitting there on, on a Saturday night and you just know that you don't really want another pizza. But heck, what else is there to do? Yeah. Is, is well, that, that a, a normal psychological response? Yeah, I'd say that's a natural response. I mean, we, you know, there's many things that make us eat. We, we sometimes, we, obviously we eat because we're hungry, but we sometimes eat when we're anxious. We sometimes eat when we're angry. We're swallowing down feelings. We might be avoiding something. We might be feeling lonely. We might be bored. We might be tired. You know, it might just be a treat. Like you say, there's lots of different reasons that make us eat. And I think that's the difficulty when we're addressing you know, um, emotional eating and, and sort of overeating is that if, if it was drugs and alcohol, we can just say no, we can remove those things, but we have to eat. So it's very difficult to strike that balance, you know. 
and to kind of understand what it is in that moment that is making us want to eat. Yeah. Comfort yeah. eating is a term. What, what is comfort eating? Is that what comfort eating is? It is really, yeah. It's, I mean, if you think about, you know, sadness and anxiety and poor self-esteem, we're, we're, we're often taught to medicate them as a child as well. You know, you fall over, you cut your knee, your mum says, you know, rubs your knee and then gives you a biscuit. And, you know, we, we're kind of soothed by food from a very young age. And if you think even babies when they're suckling you know that it's comfort it's it's a way of comforting ourselves so food can become really the balm that soothes the pain you know um so yeah comfort eating is a huge factor yeah caller on the phone here it's an interesting one her daughter had an operation it doesn't say whether that was recently or when but her daughter had an operation and from the day she went into hospital she stopped eating normally Right. Like that that seems to be a, a, a trauma, isn't it? Yeah, there's lots of traumas around sort of medical procedures as well. And, and, you know, it seems to be that sometimes even when people are unaware of what's been, you know, what procedure has been done on the body, the body kind of keeps the score. It's very, a lot of this is very much linked into the nervous system. You know, when we've been through trauma, you see, when, when trauma is happening, whatever, whether it's a, a, a trauma that's a sort of immediate thing that's happening in a moment or whether it's chronic over a period of time trauma tends to disrupt the way we store memory and it 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 disrupts basically i won't go into neuroscience but the frontal lobes of the brain kind of switch off when when we're experiencing trauma when we're in that heightened fight and flight state so we we struggle to always make sense of the reasons why we feel the way we feel you know, it, it can be very difficult to sort of unpick it all. So I don't know in that situation mm. whether it was fear that her daughter was feeling that, you know, maybe not eating was a way of trying to control some of the, those feelings or, or whether it was a procedure that she had done to her that created mm. a sense of trauma. I don't know. But, yeah, that's very common. Is, is it true that you can actually pick up evidence of trauma on something like a brain scan? Yeah, it, neuroscience, there's a lot of work being done in that field. And as I say, I'm not a researcher and I'm not a neuroscientist, but there's a huge amount of work. There's a really interesting book, if there's anybody listening that wants to kind of delve into this, called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's by Bessel van der Kolk. And he goes into a lot of that work, looking at brain scans and looking into trauma and how we store trauma in the body. You know, so there are different ways of approaching it. Obviously, I'm a counsellor, and so we would be looking at, you know, experiences and emotions and thinking patterns. And I'm also a yoga teacher, and I will get people coming to yoga classes who maybe have trauma and don't want to necessarily talk about it, but get a lot of soothing from yoga and can release the trauma that is stored in their body through a, a physical practice a somatic practice body base. So we call this top down. So that's the sort of talking therapies and bottom up, which is, you know, going to like yoga classes or doing some kind of physical way of releasing trauma. So there's a lot of research being done on both. And I think ideally those two need to come together and that's what's happening. A lot of counsellors are sort of exploring body based therapies and lots of sort of yoga teachers are doing counselling training. So Gradually, I think, you know, we'll, we'll start to see these two things come together. And I think that's what's needed, you know. 
other people picking up the phone this morning to the opinion line and asking questions of you because clearly they're, they're fascinated by, by the, the connection. I feel, says this person, I feel I neglect myself and then I become disgusted with myself and I comfort eat. Is trauma down to neglect? Is it is the neglect a kind of trauma? Well, and she, she that adds that she had a very poor childhood. Her family were very poor when she was a child. Yeah, and so she possibly felt neglected as a child and maybe didn't learn how to really treat herself and her body with compassion and how to comfort herself. And so that tendency to neglect her needs has continued into adulthood. And, you know, so we repeat these patterns. We do repeat what we learn as a child. If you've had parents that have been very comforting and very nurturing and given lots of hugs and maybe you find it easier to look after your own needs, you know, whereas if you've grown up in a family where you were feeling isolated or lonely or neglected or abandoned, you tend to, and this is just a tendency to abandon yourself. And so this is the thing with dieting, you see, and and why I think this New Year's resolution idea is, right, I'm going to go on this strict diet and I'm going to lose all this weight. If you think about it, and I mean, this is quite fascinating to me, really, that we're actually putting our body into a state of fight and flight because we're beginning to maybe exercise more on fewer calories. We're depriving ourselves. We're ignoring our hunger cues. We, you know, we're actually depriving ourselves. And so mm. you might Inflicting with, more trauma, if you want. Yeah, really, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, dieting itself could traumatize it if you look at it that way. Um, M- and mentioning then, January... Yeah. Um, and the fact that it, it is the month when, when people decide, right, I'm yeah, going to I'm be gonna... beach ready, I'm getting yeah. rid of the extra pounds, I'm going to be fit, I'm going to be healthy, I'm going to be all these things. There is a huge culture and business built Massive. around that. Massive. And it's not such a good thing, is it? No, it's huge business, multi-billion pound industry. Do you know what I mean? It's, and this is the thing. So we, we go on the diets and we then we might sort of lose some weight and feel like it's working. And then what we've lost then are the very things that were soothing us. You know, so food now has become like the enemy and not the comfort that it used to be. But we still need that sense of comfort and soothing. So eventually we kind of give in and we go back to what we know and we start to regain the weight. And sometimes we gain more weight on top of that. But now we feel like a failure and we see ourselves as weak. But actually, it's not, you know, the whole, like you said, the whole industry is built to make us fail. Like, they don't want us to feel good about ourselves. They, they want us to keep buying these foods. And actually, I was only just thinking that, like, if they don't catch us in January, then, like you say, it's the beach-ready body coming mm. in us as May time. And then if they don't get you then, it's like the little black dress for Christmas, you know, yeah. or... or I hear a suggestion there in what you're saying that they don't actually want us to succeed. In other words, if we succeed in the four weeks heavy-duty discipline or five weeks discipline in January and February, if we succeed, we're lost to them as a customer. Exactly, yeah. And they make money out of us that way. They want us to feel bad about ourselves. I mean, it's even when you think about, you know... So there's a beauty industry. It's huge. They they don't want women to feel happy as they are. They they want to keep us, you know, buying their products. So yeah, I think and and really, you know, I mean, food is made to be hard to resist. You know, very high fat, very high sugar. 
it gives us a dopamine hit. You know, when you eat certain foods, we all know that if you open a bag of Doritos, you're not going to put it away. You're going to eat the oh, whole bag. They, they make these things to be irresistible. And you see, I think we're getting all these warnings all the time from, you know, government health services that we need to get obesity in check and we need to, to lose weight and be healthy. And it's made to us, it makes us feel like it's an individual issue, whereas actually at the same time, you know, we're surrounded by this industry that is constantly... I was, I was actually only thinking there the other day, like I live in Douglas Village, and you know there was a huge area there that I, they were building on. And for a short time, I thought maybe they'll build sort of like, I don't know, a, a roller skating ring or a bowling alley or something that we can do that's active and we can go there with our kids. But they've built another supermarket. And across the road from it, there's another fast food drive-through you know, and, and these kind of fast foods, are, they're so cheap to people. They make them so cheap that, you know, we, we're going to make wrong choices. Well, not necessarily wrong choices, but those choices because they're easy for us. And, we're, we're, and they led are down, we're led down the road yeah, of totally. making those choices. Where can we find out more, Louise? Is there a website you recommend? Um, well, obviously, Eating Freely, I've got to sort of say they're a great, there's a great program there for people with emotional eating. Um, you know, I think you can read around this. There's lots of information on the in- internet. There's lots of research. There is for people with eating disorders. There's BodyWise, which is the, the National Eating Disorder um, Service. And, and, you know, I have to say that eating disorders, these are not necessarily eating disorders. I think that across the board, people struggle with food and eating and, you know, their relationship with food. So it's not necessarily an eating disorder, you know. But what I, what I would say as well is, is rather than dieting in January, what I'd encourage people to do if they're struggling with their body image or their weight is to maybe start journaling um, around their eating behavior and asking those questions. Am I hungry? Am I anxious or angry or lonely or bored or tired or tense? And start to work out, you know, their connection to food because there's a lot of insight can be gained just from doing that, you know. It's a good good starting point. Lastly, a question has come in here, Louise. When I have dark thoughts about what happened in my last job, I withdraw and I do nothing. I get very yeah. hungry and I eat rubbish. I'm getting yeah. huge. What's happening? Can you help? Yeah, well, that is a, a very normal sort of a reaction. If you look at the nervous system, you know, we tend to either go into fight and flight, which is, you know, this very highly stressed sort of um, state of anxiety, uh, or, or we can go actually into a state of immobilization. And that's a normal response to traumatic events as well, where we tend to sort of shut down. And in that sort of space of feeling shut down, we will tend to potentially overeat and kind of withdraw inwards and isolate ourselves. And it's a, it's a nervous system response. If people want to a, contact you, Louise, where can they go about it? Well, funnily enough, I actually just set up an Instagram page yesterday um, and I've called it Counselling Connected because I also have a, a page called Yoga Connected. And I think, um, as I say, it's all connected. Body and mind is very much connected. So Counselling Connected is where you can find me on Instagram at the moment. Otherwise, 
I don't have a website for my um, counseling work just yet, but you can find me through Douglas Yoga Centre. As I said, I have a yoga studio in Douglas Village and I do a lot of sort of one-to-one yoga sessions there, but I also do counseling sessions there. Um, or you can find me through the Eating Freely website. Okay. Louise, good to talk to you and thank you thank very you much. Thank you so much. Thanks. That's Louise George, 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. The Cork's 96FM music panel gives you the power to pick our playlist. Click 96FM.ie now. 96FM.ie now. Take the 10-minute survey and you could win a 100-euro shopping voucher. The power to pick what we play. Pick what we play. Join the Quartz 96 FM music panel. Find the link on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Find the link on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Or see 96FM.ie. This is Quartz Gold Imro Award-winning talk show, The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now, 0833969696. On Quartz 96 FM. Coming up before 12 today, a woman who says, if you're one of these people who thinks COVID is just the flu, look at my mom. That's coming. 1850-715-996. Speaking of COVID, this time last year, uh, we were looking at the story coming out of China, out of Wuhan, and, and the developing crisis that they had there. Did any of us think that a year on, it would be all of our problem, and that a year on, so many of us would have been working from home, and that in fact, we would now be living under a set of restrictions that say... You must work from home unless you absolutely cannot work from home. It's, it's been a learning curve for us all. I've been working for half my day at home since last March in that I finished the show at midday and I'm home and all by about quarter to ten to one and then I do the rest of my day here. And of course, for the last couple of weeks, I'm doing the whole thing. I'm doing my whole day at home and I'm beginning to wonder if doing it full time I wouldn't lose my my mind, but some people have no choice. Karen O'Reilly is the founder of Employ Flex. Karen, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you doing? Good. Do we have a better idea now uh, than we did have a year ago of what this whole working from home thing actually is? Yeah, uh, when you just brought me back, actually, just as an aside um, to this time last year, um, my husband was actually in China. When this all kicked off, and um, and that's the reason why I suppose flexible work is so important to me, because he works abroad all the time, and I have got two kids and, and need flexibility at work. Um, so he, his company got him out of China as soon as things kicked off there. But um, yeah, so I suppose we were all thrown into this um, remote work environment um, on the 12th of March last year, and we certainly have learned a lot. I think um, both from employer side and employee. Um, I think, you know, it's really important for the employers and some are, are, are being very empathetic and very understanding. Um, it's important that they communicate now with um, their, their, the people who are working for them and make sure that um, they're as comfortable as possible where they are at home. 
Some some employers have not been sympathetic at all. Others have been have been very sympathetic and very cooperative. Uh, it 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 would be very difficult to settle into a working from home routine if if your boss doesn't have the right attitude. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and now I suppose it's time for employers to step up and you know be that be the leader that they should be. Um, we we have over five thousand candidates registered with us, and we speak to people every day. Um, who are looking for work and and, pl- and we place people every day as well. Um, but, you know, for example, I had one mother contact me there um, just yesterday. She's working full-time from home. Um, she's got three kids under five uh, and she's trying to manage all that. So you can imagine the juggle that she has uh, working full-time. So she ends up, she's, she's trying to mind the kids. They obviously need a lot of care. Uh, so she's, she ends up, she, she's told me she's working nearly 20 hours a day um, How do you trying, balance all of that? Yeah, it, it's really, really difficult, you know. And I think, you know, for employers, you know, you're you're looking at serious burnout from your employees, stress, exhaustion. You've got the guilt in there. People are lonely. They're feeling isolated, and they've also, you know, a lot of them also have, you know, money worries because one or, or one or one or two of them may not be making the same amount of money if you're in a, in, a, in a relationship. So, you know, it's very important for the employers to communicate with their employees, see what suits them. Um, geez, just to be a little bit more understanding, you know, we're on, we're in the last, um, we're on the last hurdle now, you know, the end is in sight, the vaccines are coming. So this is going to be a short term lockdown, whatever way we look at it. So, you know, you know, just trying to be a little bit more understanding for this, this last um, stretch that we have before uh, we go back to, inverted commas, normal. <laughs> yeah, no. do, do you think though, Karen, that a lot of people who have done their work from home over the last 12 months will say, do you know what? I kind of like this. It suits me. Um, Are we looking at a lot of people who will say to their boss, do you know, I'd actually kind of like to keep working from home? Absolutely. I think a lot of people have seen, you know, that, you know, employers and employees that, you know, it can work. Um, and before, when we were trying to convince people, um, employers, to embrace flexibility or remote work, we were coming up against arguments like um, they can't trust their employees, and the security is an issue, um, you know, productivity isn't going to be the same. But, you know, we have proven, and you know, employers and employees have proven that, you know, that you can overcome these barriers and productivity is actually much higher in some cases. And I think this is, I suppose this is the ironic thing about it, really. Um, that was one of the major arguments that productivity would go down and they couldn't trust their employees. But, you know, studies have shown and, and, and we have seen that productivity has gone up. And actually what is the problem is that um, employees are in risk of burnout because they're working so much. So they're actually yeah. working harder and longer hours. Um, mm. So I suppose that's really good that we, we see the government, um, they've got a public consultation at the moment on, on the right to disconnect um, yes. So that will give. Um, Explain what that means to people, because I was I was going to go there. Like in France, I think they've done it. You actually have got a right now after finishing time. Your boss does not have the right to contact you, text you, email you, whatever, until starting time the following day. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So France introduced that in 2017. Um, so really, I suppose the right to disconnect is um, giving workers a legal standing to avoid work emails or being contacted outside working hours. So I think this is really, you know, it's good, good, good forward thinking from the government, I suppose, to, to be adopting this as well. Um, because, as I said, people are at risk of burnout. 
they're getting on and they feel as if they should be answering mm. their emails and their calls out of the temptation for a boss is, well, look, you know, Mary's got her laptop and her printer set up and sure, she's at home anyway, so she'll do another hour for me if I ask her. That, I know, that I know. Be happening. We are hearing that from candidates as well, that they are getting calls and emails out of office hours and they're expected to answer to, to, to them. So, um, you know, this I think this will be a welcome initiative if it is. I'm sure it will come into legislation shortly um, that, you know, we will have that um, right to disconnect. And it's important as well for everybody's well-being and mental health as well that you close your computer and you leave your, your office and you have that, um, you know, that distance from work um, and you, you, you can separate, I suppose, your work and, yeah. and your home life. Um, yeah, so it is good as well that you have a dedicated office space as well that you can hopefully, you know, close the door in it or shut down and, yeah. and, and have that separation between life and, and work. Okay, well, maybe by this time next year, like you say, it will be a thing of the past unless somebody actually wants to be doing it. Karen, thank you very much. 1850715996. I'm one of the people who's not allowed work from home, says this message. I could do, but lack of trust by my employer and the cost of setting up is the main reason. I'm now deemed an essential worker to get around this. What a joke. Speaking of essential workers, this is in the system for a while, so I want to read it. Michal Martin should instantly close all body shops. This, I presume, is car repair, body shops, panel beaters and spray painters and all that, as they're not a safe place to be working. There are outbreaks in body shops all over the country, and especially in Cork. More people are getting sick and testing positive every day. The motor trade and anything to do with it is deemed essential. Uh, which is why those places are allowed to open. 1850-71, deemed essential. I didn't say they are essential. Deemed essential. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. So you've got a smartphone or tablet. And get the must-have app. So you can take us everywhere. Download the Cork's 96FM app today. And listen to your favourite shows on the go. Grab our podcasts. And get all the latest Cork news. And if you've a smart speaker, speaker. ask it to play Cork's 96FM. Play Cork's 96FM. Okay. On your phone, tablet, smart speaker, and radio. Turn up the volume. We are Cork's 96FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. We've mentioned this before. I forget it. It's been sitting there for a while. Do you remember I was talking last week to Annette about her mom's missing dog, Ollie? Uh, Mary, her mom, is in her 90s or 90 now when Ollie is her companion and uh, lives alone. Um, Ollie is effectively her her life partner at this stage and goes everywhere with her and sits in her lap and all that. She's devastated at the loss of, of Ollie, who went missing while they were out for a walk. Uh, I was talking to Annette about it last week. Uh, she's had a couple of messages from people who think that they might have seen Ollie in Ballinhasic which is a bit of a distance from where she was calling me from, but these things can happen. So if you're in around Ballinhasic, do keep a lookout for Ollie. Now, he's a, a unique little dog. He's a jug. 
He's a half a Jack Russell and a half a pug. He is microchipped, very placid, very friendly and all of that. Uh, a jug, an unusual combination. Uh, friendly little chap. Ollie is his name. Might, he may, he, if you spot him, he might even come if you call him uh, and get in touch with us and we'll get in touch with Annette and hopefully we can reunite Ollie with Mary. 1850 I, I've been watching this on and off over the last... 12 months practically now since COVID started and initially when the stories were coming out of China and then coming out of Italy and coming out of Spain constantly, constantly, constantly lads don't be worrying about it at all, tis only the flu tis only the flu and no matter how bad the picture got from Italy in particular in Spain it's only the flu it is anything but the flu, as Fiona has discovered uh, through her mum's experience. Fiona, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. How, How are is you? she, by the way? Um, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's been really hard. And I suppose, I just want to mention, it's not just about mum, it's about the whole family. Yeah. My, brother had, my brother has uh, had COVID as well. And um, my oldest son is getting chemotherapy. He was diagnosed with cancer in October. So yeah. I've been so worried about protecting him. And um, so mum mum was um, tested positive. She she just had a an unusual taste in her mouth. She didn't have a temperature. She'd never had a temperature actually. This is quite important. So well, we felt that she would just have something mild. But um, she goes nowhere. She's been cocooning since March. She had a hospital appointment, and um, she just went downhill on Stephen's day. Was rushed to hospital. With, um, Describe the downhill to me, Fiona. I was talking to Dr. Vandeveld yesterday, yeah, and um, he said he has watched people to go downhill in a matter of hours. Explain yeah, yeah, I mean, this is really important because you can feel okay and you can be talking. And I was talking to her Christmas Day. I mean, I can't go near her because of Dylan, my son, and because he's having chemo. But she just couldn't breathe, and she had terrible gastric issues, vomiting, diarrhea, um, She's an awful nausea. She hasn't eaten in three weeks, PJ, nothing. And um, she was rushed to the CUH and was put inside like a cold room, which keeps the temperatures low. I think it's to protect staff. I'm not sure. And she was in there for sorry, a week without without any any windows or anything. And she was very cold in that environment. She, she used to tell me she felt cold. And I got her transferred when she was not contagious to another ward and um, she's been in a ward um, with other ladies there since. She's still in there as we speak, but hopefully tomorrow my mum will be released because she was just taking off oxygen before you rang me. And um, oh, That's great news. But, I mean, she's not well. I mean, she's very weak. She's elderly and um, she has developed health issues she didn't have prior to COVID with her heart. So she's on a lot of medication um, on top of medication that she's already been on. Um, this is not something that just affects your lungs, it attacks your body. And the doctors throughout, because I've been next to June, I've been phoning them sometimes 10 times a day, because we don't get updates. And I'm, I want to make this clear, there are, there are no supports for families. We're left in the dark, you know, and um, the government... The government needs to do something about that because we, we're terrified. We don't know if they're going to make it or not. Um, the hospital is under attack. You know, the, the staff, the resources out there because the government has let nurses down. This is not something that happened now. Nurses have always been let down by our government. And I want to just say the nurses and CUH and the doctors are heroes, but they need help. Um, 
elderly people especially, I want to mention, um, you know, they, they're often viewed as statistics in this COVID pandemic and we don't hear their stories enough. And I, and I want, and I'm hoping my mum will talk about that when she feels stronger because they're kind of just left there. And my mum has been in hospital without any television, not even a radio to stimulate her. And a lot of the recovery involves that because they get very down. They, they get depressed because they've no contact. So I can't believe that my mum hasn't even got a radio and the other women have Have you been able to talk to her? Sometimes, but some days she hasn't even been able to pick up the phone because the weakness, PJ, with this um, horrible disease is, is really the worst part, not being able to walk. Even my brother would, would have described the weakness. I'm quoting him. He felt like he was hollowed out. He couldn't even reach the handle of his door. So it's not... And um, like mm. what people are saying, it is. Yeah, um, I want to come come to that to finish with yeah. you. Like the, the you yeah. see it every day on your social media. I mm-hmm. see it every day on mine. I, my block button has never been busier. <laughs> it's yeah. only the it's only the flu. It's nothing like the flu. It's not, and it's, I mean the reality is, you know, my mum will take months to recover, and she she she's you know she has changed her life, you know, with new health issues she didn't have. So it's disabling, and it's not just old people. Her actually one of the cleaners in mum's hospital, who she she kind of made friends with, twenty one ended up in ICU with double pneumonia. I mean, this is not just affecting old people; it's affecting every age group. And I suppose what I really want to say, my my beef is really with um, those COVID idiots that are saying. You know, not to wear a mask, not to follow the, the level five regulations. They are out in the streets in Dublin there last Saturday, over 100 of them marching, saying COVID is a hoax. And, you know, no one is doing anything about it. The guards need to stop these people. They are health terrorists. They are endangering public health and they're making vulnerable people like my mother very ill. Um, and, and I'm really angry with the government for that, that there isn't enough, um, you know, kind of a clampdown on those people because... We're all adhering. We're all doing what we're meant to do. Um, like my children haven't been in school because of our son, because of chemo. So it's been really hard for our family. I went into Aldi in Westport last week and the two people walked in without masks and nothing was said to them. And um, that really made me angry because we're doing what we're meant to do. But there are people out there that are endangering lives. You see it in America. We have those people here too. And um, if we don't cop ourselves on, Yes, we're doing okay now because we were locked down, but we could be back here again in a month if we open up like we did before, you know? Okay, that's, that's, and that's, that's the worry. And Fiona, thank you very much. I leave it there with you. I wish Thanks, your mum well, and, and maybe Thanks. one day she'll be well enough soon to talk I to me. She, I, think lo- love, I think she'd love to talk to you. And the thing I thing would is, love no, to do so. I would love to. The elderly are not a statistic. I just want to put that word out there. No, they they're are. Every one of them is a real they're, person with a real family. And they deserve respect. And they deserve yeah. to be, you know, noted for that. Thank you, PJ. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Yeah. Bye. You're welcome, Fiona. Take care and wish her well for me. 1850-715-996. Now, I mentioned this. This was all over social media last night. Um, someone will always come up with an app or, or a website to, to let you take ownership of whatever big story is in the news. And, and there's a thing going around now where you can go on into an online calculator and you can pr- put in your age and you can put in your work, and you can put in this, that, and the other, and you'll be able to cancel, or be able to calculate when you'll get your COVID vaccine. The man behind the website is Steve Wooding, joins me from the UK. Steve, good morning. You've devised this calculator. Based on what? What variables did you put into it? Um, well, we start off with looking at the priority list um, that the Irish government uh, 
uh, published the 15 points. Um, and then we asked those questions that you mentioned to place you into one of those priority groups. Um, and then we can tell you, and then we, we've, we've researched each group to see how big they are, and then we can see how many um, people you are in the queue. Yeah, So it gives you a, a number between uh, one number and another. Um, and then we can use the I guess an estimate of the vaccination rate um, to predict when you will likely get your, your vaccine. I put my details in last evening yeah. and uh, I would be coming up with my first dose probably towards the start of September, my second dose maybe the end of October. My, my wife, who is younger than me by, by a number of years, because of her job, she could be expecting her first dose about the, the middle to end of March. This is based on present vaccination targets, isn't it? The targets of the numbers of doses and the rate of vaccination. Yes, yeah. We've, we've got a default rate in there of, of the current the current rate um, I, I expect that probably will go up um, I hope I hope everybody but <laughs> hope will, will go up but you can also um, uh, type in your own uh, value there um, to see to see what if and also another important point we we've got a an uptake rate of 74 percent so that's about what the flu how many um, people take up the flu vaccine again hopefully this covid the uptake rate will be higher um of course that that then they means there's more people um in the queue but um yeah, yeah. it's it, of course the other thing too is that this is going along the distribution rate from official sources like eu dosage and all that there's also does it take into account the fact that governments might buy their own doses and put them into the system so you'll update it to go along is the question i'm asking Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll update the default rate. Yeah. Okay, all right, leave it there. Thank you very much. That's Steve Wooding. He's the man who's come up with the online calculator. Uh, it'll work out where you might get the vaccine. We might tweet that link. It's Omni, Omni Calculator is what it is. And we might uh, put that link out there. It's a bit of fun. I mean, whether it'll be accurate or not, no one really knows. But we're tweeting that link uh, from the Opinion Line account there at the moment. It's a bit of crack. As I said last night, now I was looking at I should be getting mine in or around September. I'd much rather have my jab tomorrow if I could get it. But the end of September for me and a lot of that we have it in our work chat group as well. People were saying, ah, the second I'm not going to get it till next year. People weren't too happy with that. 1850 715. It'll all change. 1850 Mary says... Referring, I think, in particular to, to Fiona's mom, if people only saw what's happening inside the Mercy Hospital, the distress of the staff and of the ambulance personnel trying to help people and trying to make them comfortable, then they might give up their parties in the Lee Fields and on College Road and really everywhere. You wouldn't believe what it's like. The staff must be in shock. They deserve great praise. They never signed up for this. Sure, they absolutely did not. On the mother and baby homes, can Interpol be called in to investigate the crimes committed in the mother and baby homes? Yeah, it's and we have pages and pages. It's it's heartbreaking is the word being used. Infuriating is another word being used by many many people. And I have no doubt that after the apology that Michal Martin issues later today, we will we will hear far more 
about this. But for now, and thank you for all your contributions. I know it's been a heavy program and I appreciate uh, you staying with us, um, but it's it's heavy subject matter and it's got to be done. Edited by Terry Brennan, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. Thanks to Wayne on the desk back at base. We'll see you tomorrow, just after nine.